Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. All right, so I'm going to introduce you very quickly tonight to Clement. Clement, the disciple of Peter. So um, we're going to start by just telling you Clement is not a biblical character except for one place in the Bible. And that's in Philippians chapter 4, 3, chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul mentions Clement uh, in an offhanded way. And we don't even know for sure that it's the same Clement. So um, let me go look at the, let me get the passage. Since it's our only biblical reference, it seems, seems like we should take a look at it. Let's see, Philippians should be somewhere in here. Where do we keep that? Anyway, here it is. Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. It's in Paul's greetings. He says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So Philippians is written at the time of Paul's imprisonment in Rome. It's around 62 common era, I guess. 61 uh, common era, somewhere in there. Early 60s. And uh, he makes reference then to Clement as a fellow worker. Now, Clement, we ordinarily associate with Peter. What's, that's interesting that in, um, in the Bible, Clement is associated with Paul. But in church tradition, he's always associated with Peter. He's considered to be one of Peter's disciples. And so there are three bishops of Rome. The first three bishops of Rome, they are uh, a fellow named Linus, a fellow named Anacletus, and a fellow named Clement. Okay? Linus is Paul's disciple. Anacletus, or Cletus for short, and Clement are Peter's disciples. These are the first three bishops of Rome. Uh, and that's why they are considered the first three popes. Now, they probably, from what we know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of confusion in Catholic lists about the order of these three guys, which is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, which one was first uh, among these three fellows? Uh, but from what we know of how uh, bishopric was done, it's possible that they that that they were the bait dean that they served together the three of them served together as a bait dean uh, because there's always three judges on a bait dean and one of them probably was the bishop over the others but um, uh, according to the tradition uh, Linus died in 81 Anacletus died in 93 I'm not sure when Clement is said to have died but his epistle is dated to 95. 
Now, if you uh, remember when I introduced the book of Hebrews, I made an argument that Clement was also the author of the book of Hebrews. That may or may not be the case. I said it could be Clement or someone like Clement. If it's not Clement, it's someone like Clement. But it in it, but in any case, uh, since we're dating this epistle to 95, that would mean that it was written about a little a little bit more than 30 years after the book of Hebrews. So a big uh, distance between the two writings, which is 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 not unreasonable. Uh, let's let's uh, let me tell you a little bit more about what else you could read from Clement if you really get into Clement. So you could read the book of Hebrews if that that may or may not be written by Clement. Uh, you could read Clementine homilies and Clementine recognitions, which are going to be much much longer and much much more apocryphal. They are considered uh, scholars call them pseudo Clementine literature, which means fake Clement, not really written by Clement. Uh, but they record uh, a lot of uh, traditions and legends and folk tales and theology of early Jewish believers, particularly, we believe, from the sect of the Ebionites, the Ebionite uh, Jews who uh, rejected the temple after its destruction. They rejected the temple and the sacrifices. Uh, but what's nice about them, even though these are not really written by Clement, uh, they are uh, fictional in the sense of like historical fiction, like someone is writing and pretending to be Clement. But what's nice about them then is that they preserve for us a body of legend that must have been circulating among Christians and among early Jewish believers about Clement. So we can actually learn some things about Clement based on the fake Clementine writings. Does that make sense? It's like we were learning in Tales of the Apostles. So what are some of the things that we can learn from fake Clementine uh, literature? Uh, well, for example, we learned that Clement was a Gentile. Eh? A Gentile from Rome. That he um, traveled to Judea to actually meet the apostles. He encountered uh, the gospel very at a very early stage in Rome. He traveled to at first to Alexandria, uh, where he bumped into uh, believers. And from there, he decided to go meet the apostles himself. He traveled to Judea, became a disciple of Simon Peter, uh, spent a considerable amount of his life following Simon Peter around and uh, chasing down that evil Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. Um, so that's what the Clementine recognitions and the Clementine homilies are all about. Um, another, another writing that's attributed to Clement is called the Epistle of Second Clement. You have it in here. Scholars agree it's not by Clement. Instead, his name has just spuriously been stuck on it, and it's actually just an example of an early Christian sermon, early Christian teaching. It's still a very worthy piece of literature, I'm sure, but not, not actually writing of Clement. So the question that we, we should, we, we're probably, you know, should try to resolve before we get into the text is, was, you know, we know Clement was a Gentile from Rome. The question, my question, that seems pertinent is, was he still a Gentile at the time of writing First Clement? 
And the answer is, uh, well, we're not going to be able to ascertain the answer because it's not clear about it. But in the pseudo-Clementine literature, it makes it sound as if perhaps he had to convert, that he, under, he went through a conversion. Uh, and this, that would make sense. If he's really as early as that literature says, then he came onto the scene with Peter prior to the ministry of Paul. And so it's very likely that he, after accepting the God of Israel and rejecting idolatry, that he became a believer. I mean, uh, that he became a Jew. He underwent a conversion to Judaism. And so is no longer Clement the Gentile, as we're reading. So that's something to keep in mind as we read. Uh, why would we study first Clement? Well, Clement is not an apostle, and that's why he didn't make it into the apostolic writings. So, but you should know this. Some versions of the New Testament in some churches still include first Clement. So, in, according to some canons, some Christian canons, he is in the New Testament. First Clement was read very widely in the early Christian church. It was considered New Testament until the time came when the church council said, you know, we need to pare this thing down a little bit. Uh, and they made the criteria. The criteria was, do we have a firm tradition that this writer was an apostle? Or had, or if not an apostle, a direct uh, uh, writer for the apostles, like Mark in the case of writing for Simon Peter. Um, or Luke, in the case of uh, his association with with Paul. Clement, they were not so sure on. And there is another problem with Clement in that he mentions the phoenix, the mythological phoenix. And so, two strikes and he was out of the New Testament. In my mind, this was a mistake. I think Clement should have... I, I think Clement should have been kept. It should have been retained. But... Who am I to argue with the church councils, right? So um, instead, we're going to have a Clement Bible study. Uh, in addition to uh, those reasons for studying Clement, here's another thing that's really important. We're going to get an incredible glimpse of the teaching of the apostles because Clement was a disciple of the apostles, and we have a lot of text here. So we're going to get a great glimpse of apostolic teaching in its first century context. So that alone makes it exciting to me. So I'm going to read you a little introduction to the epistle that I wrote for Torah Club Volume 6, Chronicles of the Apostles. Now this is, this is around 95, um, when Domitian is emperor and he has recently started the arrests associated with Fiscus Judaicus that we learned about a few weeks ago. All right. So Clement received bad news about the believers in Corinth. Paul's epistles to the Corinthians now circulated widely among the churches. The first epistles the, or the epistles of First and Second Corinthians made the large assembly of believers in Corinth famous among the early Christians. 
The Corinthian community of believers modeled virtue and godliness. Christians traveling between the East and the West routinely stopped over in Corinth for a stay among the Corinthian believers. The assembly at Corinth received all the brothers and sisters with magnificent hospitality. Those who spent time among the Corinthian believers reported their faith to be virtuous, steadfast, well-grounded in knowledge. They kept the Torah. They walked in the commandments of God and submitted to those who had authority. We're going to see all this tonight. Unlike believers in many other places throughout the diaspora, the Corinthian Christians do not seem to have suffered persecution. A profound and abundant peace was given to them. They offered prayers for their brothers and sisters throughout the world and did their best to maintain contact with other communities during the troubled years. And by troubled years, I mean these, Domitian, these persecutions under Domitian, the persecutions under Nero that we studied uh, in, the, in the previous classes. Paul and the apostles appointed the original leadership of the Corinthian community. That was four decades earlier. Most of those men had since died and passed down the mantle to a second generation, men of excellent behavior for the ministry, which they fulfilled blamelessly and with honor. Then Clement received a report about a schism in the Corinthian community. New, younger leaders unseated the elders and took control of the assembly. We don't know what triggered the schism. But Clement attributed the unrest to jealousy and envy. Whatever happened in Corinth, it was serious enough to warrant some involvement from outside parties. Litigation may have been involved. The Corinthians sent a letter to Clement and the elders in Rome for their counsel in settling the matter that had led to the dispute. The dispute must have involved some theological, doctrinal, or halakhic debate, Otherwise, the Corinthians would not have appealed to the elders at Rome for help. They hoped that Clement and the elders at Rome, men with words of the apostles still ringing in their ears, could offer wisdom and counsel from an apostolic perspective to settle the unrest. The discord did not surprise Clement. He remarked, Our apostles also knew, through our master Yeshua the Messiah, that there would be strife on account of the office of leadership. Nevertheless, he bemoaned the disgrace that the discord had brought upon the name of Messiah. It pained him to know that unbelievers had heard about the dispute, and he chastised the Corinthians for drawing attention to themselves and placing themselves in danger of scrutiny from the government. Clement wrote a long epistle to the Corinthian believers in the spirit of Paul's letters. He addressed it to the assembly of God which sojourns at Rome to the assembly the, the assembly of God which sojourns at Rome to the assembly of God sojourning at Corinth. We know this as the epistle of First Clement, the longest of all the apostolic era epistles and the only authentic document attributed to Clement of Rome. The earliest piece of Christian writing after the books of the canonical New Testament and it most likely predates, get this, it's earlier than the Gospel of John, than the epistles of John, and the revelation of John. The letter attempted to speak on behalf of the leadership of the Roman believers. It completely ignored the theological matters that led up to the initial rupture in Corinth. Clement regarded the cause of the quarrel as irrelevant. <coughs> the real problem involved human jealousy, ego, and envy. He called for the Corinthians to reestablish order, peace, and their old leadership. Since none of the elders who had been removed from office, had committed any moral offenses, Clement charged the usurpers with high-handed, unjustifiable behavior. 
He argued persuasively from several points, urging the assembly in Corinth to repent and remove the factious party and reinstate the old leadership. All right, that's the gist of the epistle. The epistle of First Clement provides us with a snapshot of how the late first century believers combined scripture and apostolic writings as authoritative and divinely inspired texts. In the course of the epistle, Clement quotes generously from the scripture and expounds on the stories in the Torah. He demonstrates adept com- competency with the biblical text. He typically uses Septuagint versions when quoting scripture. He sometimes cites sources that are no longer extant. He often invokes Jewish readings of the text and Midrashic traditions as if they were obvious and well-known. He cites and alludes to passages from Paul's epistles, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, indicating that those letters had already assumed a universal currency among the believers. In addition to Paul's letters, he quotes or alludes to passages from James and 1 Peter, and he frequently cites the sayings of the Master. Some of his material seems to come from the Synoptic Gospels, and some of it comes from independent traditions, which is very interesting because uh, you know the, the Synoptic Gospels aren't even the, the Gospels are. He doesn't. He has the epistles in hand, but he doesn't have the Gospels necessarily in hand yet. He has like early, early versions of the Gospels. Uh, he doesn't have the Gospels as we have them. That's what I'm saying. First Clement has such strong affinities with the epistle to Hebrews that some believe Clement authored or co-authored that epistle as well. The epistle of First Clement nearly achieved canonical status itself. It appears in some canonical lists and was read publicly in churches along with the apostolic writings for several centuries. Even in the 4th century, Eusebius said, We know that this epistle also has been publicly used in a great many churches, both in former times and in our own. Clement placed the letter in the hand of three messengers from the Roman community, Claudius uh, Ephibus, Valerius Beto, and Fortunatus. Fortunatus was, the orig- was from the original generation of believers in Corinth who knew the Apostle Paul. Clement instructed the Corinthians to send the men back to him quickly with good news about the restoration of peace and harmony in Corinth. All right, so that's our introduction to First Clement. Now we can start reading first Clement. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Any questions? All right. Was, was it in Greek? Did he, did he, is, yes. Is the, so the copy is Greek. Greek. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good Greek. Actually. Yeah. All right. The introduction first Clement. The church of God which sojourns in Rome, to the church of God which sojourns in Corinth, to those who are called and sanctified by the will of God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, may grace and peace from Almighty God, through Jesus Christ, be yours in abundance. Because of sudden and repeated misfortunes and reverses which have happened to us, brothers, we acknowledge that we have been somewhat slow in giving attention to the matters in dispute among you, dear friends, especially the detestable and unholy schism so alien and strange to those chosen by God, which a few reckless and arrogant persons have kindled to such a pitch of insanity that your good name, once so renowned and loved by all, has been greatly reviled a long sentence, huh? That's good Greek rhetoric. That's a good Greek rhetorical style. 
What are these sudden and repeated misfortunes and reversals? You see, it appears that Clement and the community in Rome received this news about, about Corinth and the request for advice, assistance, uh, a, a ruling, uh, council, whatever it is. They received this prior to or during the midst of the uh, persecutions under Domitian that we studied about when we learned about Fiscus Judaicus and Patmos and John's exile to Patmos and that sort of thing. So this was a, this was an intense period of persecution, but it was a short one. It, it's uh, you know it's it's around ninety five common eras, about probably ran about a year in length, not much more than twelve months. So at some point in that period of time, uh, Clement receives news from Corinth, but is unable because of the current crisis to get a response sent. So things seem to have settled down and he's able to sit down and write a proper response and send an embassy back to Corinth with his reply, with his letter. So he immediately addresses the problem. It's a schism. You know what a schism is? It's a fight. It's a, it's a split. We say split, a church split. All right, a schism is a split. A schismatic is a splitter. <laughs> Somebody who's uh, doing the split. Right. So he calls it a detestable and unholy schism, which he says should be alien and strange to those chosen by God. Is it alien and strange to those chosen by God? I'm not sure it is, but uh, it should be. It should be. He calls it a, uh, you know, he calls this sort of thing the pitch of insanity. And, um, and, and he says uh, that it's tarnished their good name. So if you look on your sheet under First Clement, here I have some notes on this first verse. First of all, the sudden and repeated calamities and misfortunes, a, a few notes on, on what that was about. Uh, these are the persecutions under Domitian and the Jewish tax, Fiscus Judaicus. Domitian discovered and arrested Christians in Rome who did not publicly acknowledge the Jewish faith, but lived as Jews or had drifted into Jewish ways. That's what the Roman historians say. The persecutions involved interrogations, confiscations of property, banishment, and in many cases, martyrdom. The matters of dispute. Apparently, members of the Corinthian community appealed to Clement and his colleagues in Rome to counsel them, Regarding a recent sedition, this is, I have already explained all this. These are just some notes. Uh, the outbreak of the Domitian persecutions in Rome prevented Clement and his colleagues from immediately composing a reply. Uh, it has tarnished their good name in that, and by good name, this is just a Jewish idiom for a reputation, your good reputation. The Corinthian assembly had a good reputation based on Paul's work there and the fame of the Corinthian letters. And Clement says, well, that's, um, that's now been damaged. Your reputation is damaged. He goes on in verse 2. For has anyone ever visited you who did not approve your most excellent and steadfast faith? Now here we see, um, you know, he starts to speak of people visiting Corinth. Uh, he's speaking of believers who are shipping from east to west or west to east. Corinth is a stopping spot you know, as you're going through the Mediterranean on your way to Rome. Uh, Corinth is, is a, a layover. It's a place where you'd change ships and that sort of thing. And so uh, believers 
moving around the Mediterranean, would commonly be staying with the uh, believers in Corinth, uh, finding hospitality with the believers in Corinth, and they then they would they would have these good things to say about them. This is how it should be for us in Hudson, like like people should say, you know, all over the Messianic world, people should be saying, "Oh yeah, I was in Hudson and it was so great," and they were like, uh, "So you know, this is our objective here uh, that they should say this about us." He says, "For has anyone ever visited you who did not approve your most excellent and steadfast faith, who did not admire your sober and magnanimous Christian piety, who did not proclaim the magnificent character of your hospitality? There it is. Who did not congratulate you on your complete and sound knowledge? For you did everything without partiality. When it says, uh." Without partiality, this is literally without respecting persons is is the idiom, and we see the same the exact same thing in james two nine where he says, "Hey, if a stranger comes into your synagogue and he's wearing nice clothes and you give him a good seat uh, and then a, a poor man comes in and you, you you don't give him a good seat isn't that showing partiality isn't that respecting?" Person. So he says, you did everything without showing partiality. And you lived in accordance with the laws of God, submitting yourselves to your leaders and giving to the older men among you the honor due them. Now, this is very important. And this is some of the stuff that we're going to see in Clement. Because, like I said, you have a snapshot here of early Christianity. And here's what the snapshot says. Early Christians were submitting themselves to quote, unquote, the laws of God, i.e. the Torah. We're speaking about Torah observance uh, in the first century Christian communities. And he says, submitting yourselves to your leaders and giving to the older men among you honor do them. Now, we think it's very nice to honor the elders, you know, the elder, the elderly, but Clement doesn't have in mind the elderly here, but rather the word is elders, uh, honoring the elders among you. So elders is a technical term for men appointed to the leadership of the community. The way this would ordinarily work is you would have three elders at a minimum over a small community of like, you know, 10 to 20. There'd be three elders at a minimum, at a minimum. And then one of them would be the bishop. The uh, larger communities would have larger numbers of elders. And with uh, one of them still presiding as the bishop. And that's how all of the early communities uh, uh, were, were divided. In, I mean, had leadership. So when he says, uh, you, were giving, uh, you were submitting yourselves to the older men and giving them the honor due them, this is a reference to that form of leadership. You instructed the young men to think temperate and proper thoughts, and you charged the women to perform all their duties with a, bl- with a blameless, reverent, and pure conscience, cherishing their own husbands as is right, and you taught them to abide by the rule of obedience. What is the rule of obedience? Well, I have some cross-references for you. That's just... When the apostles say uh, to, to wives, obey your husbands, wives, you know, that sort of thing. Ephesians 5.22, 1 Peter 3.1. 1. 
and to manage the affairs of their household with dignity and all discretion. It's interesting, you know, uh, manage the affairs of their household uh, it means something different in the ancient world than it means in the modern world. So, you know, manage the affairs of the household, maybe in the modern world, sort of has the idea of, what is that? Do the cooking and the cleaning. <laughs> you know, take care of the kids. Do the cooking and the cleaning and take care of the kids. But in the ancient world, oh, you get to pay bills? Oh, yeah. Well, in the ancient world, it certainly meant pay bills. It meant, it meant, you know, you're in charge of the domestic slaves. You're in charge of the slaves. You're in charge of the basically running the operations of the house, the business out of the house and that sort of thing. And um, it's like the Ashet Chayel of uh, Proverbs 31, you know, all the little cottage industries and in that, that are associated with the home and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, a, it's a much broader than, it's not just a barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen kind of image, right, that uh, you might sometimes get from these types of passages. Uh, but anyway, that's an aside. I'm not sure why we keep them barefoot. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, because they have swollen feet. Huh? I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, off, uh, on we go. <laughs> So that was the first chapter. It's pretty quick to get through a chapter, huh? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. And it's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, because we're we're trying to we're trying to catch a picture. It's like it's like a time machine to me. Yeah. A document like this is like a time machine. It's like you get you actually get to like see into their world and go, wow. I mean, well, with your help, if I was just reading it by myself, I wouldn't be going as far back. <laughs> so was this written? After the Corinthian, first and second Corinthians. Yes, yeah. So that's a good question. Sandy asks if this is what, what is where is this written in no. relationship to Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. So Paul writes to the Corinthians around um, uh, the mid fifties. Okay. Uh, so um, and this is in the mid nineties. So we're forty years later. Paul's been dead at this point for thirty years or, or you know 25 years something like that probably 25 years paul's been dead huh oh my math is terrible um paul's been dead about 30 years uh, so the the original elders that paul appointed they're pretty much all dead too in fact another generation had already replaced them and those elders are the ones that have been ousted by the young upstarts. Yes, mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So reading on. Moreover, you were all humble and free from arrogance, submitting rather than demanding submission, more glad to give than to receive, and content with the provisions which God supplies. Um, I quibble with the translation here, uh, but I won't get into it. Um, it's not really worth it. Uh, I, I like the, um, I like the manuscript version that says, which Christ provided for you. Uh, the, 
It has to do with grace which Christ provided for you. This is a saying of the master, more happy to give than to receive. Do you recognize it? It's not from the Gospels. You realize that? It's an, it's an, an agrapha, an agraphone, an agraphone. That's a, a saying of the master that does not appear in the Gospels. It appears in Paul's writings. So you can find it in um, Acts 20.35, is that? Paul's, that, that's in Paul's, when Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders, he makes reference to it. Uh, but um, that's kind of nice. Here we have it. Uh, these, and these non-canonical sayings of the master float around like this, and here we, we have it again. All right. Thus, a profound and... Oh, where, where was I? Oh, thank you, thank you. And giving heed to his words, this would be in, in my reading, This and giving heed to Yeshua's words, you stored them up diligently in your hearts and kept his sufferings before your eyes. See why I read it that way? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah, right, right, right. That's fine. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So giving heed to the master's words, you stored them up diligently in your hearts and or in your bowels and kept his sufferings before your eyes. Thus, a profound and rich peace was given to all together with an insatiable desire to do good and an abundant outpouring of the Holy Spirit fell upon everyone as well. Being full of holy counsel, with excellent zeal and a devout confidence, you stretched out your hands to Almighty God, imploring Him to be merciful if inadvertently you had committed any sin. So you see what he's doing? He's painting this very pious picture of the Corinthian community. Uh, this is, they, they, they were so holy, they couldn't think of any sins to confess. So they had to, like, they had to just pray, um, you know, just in case there's something I'm not thinking of, I confess it, you know... He says, you struggled day and night on behalf of the brotherhood. You struggled day and night on behalf of the brotherhood that through fear and conscientiousness, the number of his elect might be saved. That is the number of the number. I I read this to mean the number of Israel, his chosen, the number of the chosen. That is, you know, the chosen people. You were sincere and innocent, and free from malice, one toward another. Every faction and every schism was abominable to you. You mourned for the transgressions of your neighbors. You considered their shortcomings to be your own. This is how much they loved loved the brothers and the sisters. Uh, You never once regretted doing good but you were always ready for every good work, which seems to be an allusion to Titus 3.1. Being adorned with a virtuous and honorable manner of life, you performed all your duties in fear of him. So when it says uh, you were ready for every good work uh, and you performed your duties in fear of him, once again, we're talking about Torah here. Good works are commandments of the Torah. Those, those are mitzvot, right? Uh, your duties to God in fear of him, this is the commandments. 
And if you know you, you question this interpretation, you keep reading, it says, the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord were written on the tablets of your hearts. So commandments and ordinances of the Lord, this is, um, this is actually an allusion to Ezekiel 36, where it says the, the Spirit will write his commandments and ordinances on our hearts. Uh, and um, written on the tablets of your heart, this refers to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, where it says, I will put my Torah within them on their heart, I will write it, and several other passages that you can see quoted there as well. Chapter 3. All glory and growth were given to you. So, so far, everything's been great at Corinth. The best people ever. And then, that which is written was fulfilled. And here's a quote from the Torah from Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses. My beloved ate and drank and was enlarged and grew fat and kicked. What does this refer to? Well, this is a loose translation of Deuteronomy 32.15, where it speaks of the success. Moses warns uh, Israel about success and prosperity being the thing that leads them away from the Lord. And so this is uh, what Clement is saying, your success and your prosperity, the success and prosperity of the Corinthian community, uh, it uh, led their hearts astray. From this came jealousy, and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and anarchy, war and captivity. So men were stirred up. Those without honor against the honored. So now he's, he's, this is Clement's perspective on this schism. Those of no repute against the highly reputed, the foolish against the wise, the young against the elders. And we could look this up and see that he's He's quoting, more or less, a loose quotation of Isaiah 3.5. That's not what's important here. What's important here is that you see uh, this, the, um, what would you call it? This, it's, not, it's not really a schism as much as, uh, it's, a, it's a coup. You know what a coup is? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like a, it's like a coup here. In that, um, there's been, it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. Exactly. For this reason, as it says in Isaiah 59, 14, righteousness and peace stand at a distance. While each one has abandoned the fear of God and become nearly blind with respect to faith in him, neither walking according to the laws of his commandments nor living in accordance with his duty toward Christ. I think this is really important that you just see how he has, on the one hand, neither living according to the laws of his commandments, as the Torah, or on the other hand, living according to, with his duty toward Christ. So you see these two things that define Christian life. Living in accordance with the laws of the commandments and living in accordance with the duty toward Christ. And the word duty towards Christ is a very interesting Greek word. Let me see if I can find where I have it here. Uh, yeah, politanethesai. Uh, it's a compound word that means to live in a manner befitting of a citizen. So I translated it as, um, instead of duty toward Christ, 
not living in accordance uh, or not living as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. It's sort of a, maybe not a very literal translation, but I think that that communicates the idea of the word. You see, in Roman society, and remember Clement is in Rome, a big part of Roman society was your patriotism, your loyalty to the state. Your, are you performing your, you know, everything is citizen, citizen. You know, everybody addresses each other as citizen. Are you uh, contributing? Are you abiding by the law? Are you contribu- contributing to the state? Uh, you know, the well-being of, of the people, of the whole, of the politic, the body politic. And so that's what's going on here. He's, he's invoking that imagery, but he's applying it to the kingdom of heaven. Are you living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Are you contributing to the kingdom? So, two things that define a Christian in the first century, right? What are they? Number one, walking according to the laws of his commandments. Number two, living as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. Instead, each follows the lusts of his evil heart inasmuch as they have assumed that attitude of unrighteousness and ungodly jealousy through which, in fact, death entered into the world. All right, when it says... Death entered into the world. Do you see in your translation that that is in quotation marks? Death entered into the world. Uh, This is a quotation from another non-canonical book. This one's from the Apocrypha, though. It's called Wisdom, the Book of Wisdom, or Wisdom of Solomon. And here's 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 the actual verse. God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through the devil's envy, death entered into the world. Okay, so according... Oh, that's a good verse. Yeah, I need to remember that. Uh, God created man to be immortal and made man to be an image of his own eternity. Of his own, you know, well, immortality. His own referring to who? God's own. So he made, he made man in his own image, is what he's saying. And in that sense, he intended him to be immortal. Nevertheless, through the devil's envy, death entered into the world. Yeah. Oh, it's very deep. Uh, it's, uh, I'm. Because it has to do with the creation legends of the fall of Satan. You know, in the beginning, God said to the angels, let us go and make man in our image and in our likeness. And this got the angels arguing. Samael, the prince of the angels, led the opposition and said, let him not be created. And while they were arguing, Hashem went and created him and then came back and said, your argument is useless because it's already done. At that point, Samael took his followers uh, and they rose up in anger and descended to the earth and they uh, found the serpent, the sly and wise serpent. And Samael uh, possessed him as an evil spirit possesses a man. And um, 
that's how that's the story behind the story and that's what uh, the book of wisdom is alluding to yeah i don't want to get sidetracked either um but i'm sidetracking myself I, I you know i missed a reference that i wanted to also make earlier in the verse he said instead each follows the loss of his evil heart inasmuch as they have assumed that attitude of unrighteousness and ungodly jealousy. All right, so when he says ungodly jealousy, the Greek word is zealos, which we could translate as zeal or zealotry. All right? Uh, and I believe that this is going to become a key word through the book of Clement. So I want you to catch it, zealous, zealotry. And Clement is using this word in the same sense that the zealot party used it in their war against the Romans that led to the destruction of the temple. And we studied this when we learned the book of James a few years ago. We learned this idea, and James brings it up in James 3.14-16 through 16, where he warns against the zealot party. And so in your notes here, I've got a reference to the Talmud uh, where it says, why was the second sanctuary destroyed despite the fact that in those days people occupied themselves with Torah, commandments, and charity? All right? And the answer is because baseless hatred prevailed within it. This teaches you that baseless hatred is considered more serious than idolatry, sexual immorality, and bloodshed all put together because for those three things, the first temple was destroyed. But those three things weren't there in the second temple era. There was just baseless hatred. So for that reason, um, the, the concept of zealotry, zeal, the zealot party and their, their baseless hatred that they exercised, uh, has this, con the, the, these words should be connected, these concepts should be connected. Jealousy, zeal, and baseless hatred. So whenever I read Clement say jealousy, I want to think in my mind baseless hatred and zealotry. Okay? For thus it is written, And it came to pass after, after certain days that Cain offered the fruits of the earth, of the earth, a sacrifice to God, and Abel also offered a sacrifice from the firstborn sheep and from the fat. Now, he's just going to tell the story of Cain and Abel, okay? So you just get the story of Cain and Abel, and you get it directly out of the Septuagint. So it's, it's pretty much a quotation from the Septuagint. And then in verse 7, uh, skipping over the story of Cain and Abel, it says, You see, brothers, jealousy, this baseless hatred and envy brought about a brother's murder. And because of jealousy, our father Jacob ran away from the presence of Esau, his brother. So here's the next brother against brother story. All right, we all know that story. Esau is jealous of Jacob, right? Baseless hatred again, right? Jealousy caused Joseph to be persecuted nearly to death. Joseph's brothers figuratively put him to death when they threw him into the pit. How so? Even though the pit had no water in it, the Talmud says, it did contain serpents and scorpions. And then the Talmud says, one who falls into a pit containing serpents and scorpions may legally be presumed dead. 
So according to the rabbinic reading of the story of Joseph, his brothers did put him to death. Mm -hmm. They did put Joseph to death. I wanted to point out as well, when he begins this list of stories from the Torah, he says, our father Jacob ran away from the presence of Esau, his brother. This is really significant because Clement may or may not be Jewish at this point. We don't know. But the Corinthians certainly are not. The Corinthians he's writing to are not. And so you'll find that scholars a lot of times and even Messianic Jewish leaders are comfortable with Gentiles referring to Abraham as our father Abraham because Paul tells us to. He says, you know, he's the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. But not so much Isaac and Jacob. Just because Paul never said, and Isaac and Jacob, they'll say, you know, in the Gentiles it's okay for you to say our father Abraham, but not our father Isaac or our father Jacob. So this becomes very relevant in Jewish liturgy when you're saying God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, right? Well, Clement doesn't know about this rule. Clement, to Clement, it's our father Jacob. That's just the way he says, Yaakov Avinu. That's how he understands it. That's what he always heard from Peter. Jacob, our father. Our father Jacob, right? And that's consistent with the, the way the apostles write, too. You know, it's uh, the apostles are very much aware of this heart, this this. There's what's there's legally Jewish and there's legally not Jewish. There's a huge difference between being a Jew and a Gentile. Huge difference, but they don't make a big deal about it. <laughs> they don't make a big deal about it, and and in terms of the the heritage and the people of God, that's possessed by all the brothers and sisters in Christ. So um, jealousy caused Joseph to be persecuted nearly to death and to be sold into slavery. Jealousy compelled Moses to flee from the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when he was asked by his own countrymen, who made you a judge or ruler over us? Do you want to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian today? All right, so jealousy forced Moses to flee. Um, and we've, if we, we study this out in, in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews also, it says um, that Moses, Moses wasn't, you know, you, you might think that Moses fled from Egypt because he was afraid of Pharaoh. That's not why he fled. Jealousy forced him to flee. And this you won't understand. You don't get this until you read Rashi on, on, on that story. Rashi explains this. He says, uh, and, and Rashi's pulling this out of the Midrash, and that's where Clement would be getting it too, because Clement didn't read Rashi. Um, Rashi's, uh, Rashi's 10th century, so he's off by nine centuries. But nevertheless, Rashi read the same sources that Clement knew. That's my theory. Uh, because the Midrash states that Moses was afraid and fled from Egypt only because he realized that there were wicked men among the people of Israel and that their sins of baseless hatred might forfeit the opportunity for redemption. Like He thought that Israel would be redeemed. But when he, they said to him, when he saw, when he saw their, their jealousy and their hatred uh, for one another, and he saw like a, a, a Jewish man uh, attacking another Jewish man, he realized, you're not worthy of redemption. And this is why he fled from Egypt. And this sounds to me like exactly what Clement is saying. Jealousy compelled Moses to flee from the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when he was asked by his countrymen, who made you a judge or ruler? 
Do you want to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So here's, here's what Clement's dealing with, Rashi's dealing with, the Midrash is dealing with, and the book of Hebrews is dealing with. Nobody likes that it says in the Torah that Moses was very afraid and fled from Pharaoh. Okay. Nobody likes that. How can Moses be afraid? We're talking about Moses here. Moses afraid of Pharaoh? So, so the Midrash and the book of Hebrews and Rashi and Clement all say, oh, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding. There was, it was, that's not how it was. Here's why Moses fled. All right, that's all. I'm, I'm just pointing it out to you because I want you to see how Jewish Clement's reading of the Bible is. And we'll, we'll just continue to see these things as we go. All right. Um, jealousy uh, compelled Moses to flee. And then um, in verse 11, because of jealousy, Aaron and Miriam were excluded from the camp. You know this story? What's wrong with this story? Yes, exactly. Miriam was excluded from the camp, not Aaron. So what's going on here? Is Clement just kind of like got it, like he bollocksed it up, like, oh, yeah, 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 I meant Miriam. That's right. Miriam was excluded from the camp, but not Aaron. Well, um, let me bring you something from Jewish literature. Well, here's my, here's my commentary on it anyway. Clement preserves an extra biblical tradition that the punishment of leprosy also struck Aaron, forcing him to join his sister outside the camp for seven days. But the Torah did not mention Aaron's punishment out of respect for the office of the high priest. The sages discouraged the legend. So this was a legend that was, was going around. But the sages discouraged the legend. In fact, Yehuda ben Batira taught, anyone who says that Aaron was also smitten with leprosy will have to give an account in heaven. When God has concealed the matter concerning Aaron, how dare we reveal it? No, no, he doesn't deny it. (laughs) He says it's absolutely right. This is his backhanded way of saying, yeah, that's what it is. Aaron was also smitten with the leprosy, but um, he doesn't want to own up to it. So once again, I'm I'm showing you this so that you see uh, Clement's reading of the scriptures is soaked in a, a, a Midrashic reading of the scriptures, a Jewish reading of the scriptures. And where did he learn all of this? From the apostles. He is a disciple of the apostles. In fact, on the front of your sheets, uh, I have a quote from Irenaeus, who is a second century guy, and he says, Clement had seen the blessed apostles and conversed with them, and their teaching was still ringing in his ears. That's how I like to think of Clement. His, their teaching was still ringing in his ears. Verse 12, jealousy brought Dathan and Abiram down alive into Hades. Of course, it says Sheol in, in the Torah, but the Greek equivalent, Hades, uh, down into Hades because they revolted against Moses, the servant of God. This is, this is Parshat Korach that he's referring to. And because of jealousy, David was not only envied by the Philistines, but also was persecuted by Saul, king of Israel. So jealousy, envy, baseless hatred. So that's our first four chapters. Why is he tell? Why, what's he doing here? What's he? Do? He's he's reviewing all of these stories because this is his diagnosis for what's happened in Corinth too. In other words, he's saying, "Oh, it's just like, you know what? It's just like Dathan and Aviram. 
It's just like Moses in Egypt. It's just like Jacob and Esau. It's just like Cain and Abel. Uh, what you're doing is the same old, same old. And where did this all begin? When death came into the world through Satan, who was the first one who was jealous. The first, the first one to bear baseless hatred because of his jealousy. So that's the first four chapters of Clement.